So the things that give you flow at one point in your life is going to eventually change. And so you've got to find new ones. And that's why there's so many new neuroscience research coming out about how when we're aging, we have this cognitive decline. But if you actually are having flow states, it will fight against cognitive decline. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. This week, I had the pleasure to chat with Dr. Jordan Hutchinson. During this conversation, we spent a lot of time talking about his studies in flow state theory and how we can implement that into our financial lives, into our money stories, so that we can experience more moments of satisfaction, moments of flow, and overall increased in well-being regarding our money stories. It was a fascinating conversation. Dr. Hutchinson is a leading figure in financial technology and planning. He serves as a vice president of technology at RFG Advisory and is also an adjunct professor at Kaplan's College for Financial Planning. Dr. Hutchinson likes to collaborate with other advisors to integrate cutting-edge technology solutions cultivating relationships with industry leaders. And he's got a deep interest in how we can integrate more states of flow with our existing body of knowledge on behavioral finances so that we can live a good life. One that we will look back and say with admiration, I did it, I lived a good life. Jordan also hosts a podcast called RFG Disruption Blueprint, a monthly podcast. So be sure to check out that podcast. In this conversation, we specifically discuss concepts of flow and how we can add it into our financial planning and our money stories. For most of us, we've experienced what flow state is. It's that state where we feel deeply absorbed and intrinsically motivated by the thing we're doing. For myself, I know when I'm mountain biking, playing hockey, prepping for a podcast, I find myself in these flow states and boy, does it feel good. I appreciated how we talked about how we can add more states of flow into our financial planning process as it really can help us as the clients feel more enduring satisfaction when it comes to our financial plans. Because as you'll hear Dr. Hutchins talk about, the research is clear. Flow states can enhance our overall being and contribute to a meaningful and fulfilling life. I'm looking forward to you hearing this conversation with Dr. Jordan Hutchinson. Before we get into the episode, if you're finding this podcast valuable and you enjoy it, you can help support the show in one or two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or you can send this episode or any other episode to a friend, family, or colleague, someone who you think would enjoy it. Now, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Jordan Hutchinson.
Dr. Jordan Hutchinson, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm excited to maybe get into a nice flow state with you because I think this is such an important topic and something that, I mean, I believe you, you, you're kind of a, if you want to call it a trailblazer on this idea of flow and personal finances. So I'm really excited to get into kind of the origin story of why you decided to bring flow into the financial conversations. And a way to talk about that, I thought we would go back to a certain transition or life event in your life. And I could be completely wrong if the internet led me astray here, but I understand you were starting to work at a place called Join, and the CEO is David Geller, and he placed a stack of books on your desk. In those books, one of them was Finding Flow. I'm curious. We've all been given books, many, many books. People like to recommend books. And I don't always have time to read them. I might say thank you or I might read them. And it's good information, but it doesn't land and resonate in like full body experience like this book seemed to do with you, considering you have designed your life, it appears personally, professionally, academically around this idea of flow. What was it about this book or the concept of flow that really spoke to you? Yeah, I think the way that it happened was, is that David, when he gave, uh, gave me that book, you know, the book was, I mean, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the author, which he was doing research for years. And that book actually was published in 1990. And there's been, you know, he's updated. He is now deceased recently in the last couple of years. But there was always um, updated versions of it. But what really happened was I needed a word for something that I experienced. And that's really what happened with that book is it gave me a title or gave me the word flow. And I've been experiencing that before. And so my, to go even farther back, which great research on your part to, to know that that's one of the, the foundational things for me was I actually played basketball in high school. I played it in college. And I even, my father used to always say to me, like, clear the noise, clear the mechanism, like focus. And literally this was my frustration that the young man shooting free throws or shooting shots in the gym, trying to be a better player. I would always get frustrated and, you know, trying not to hear the crowd and all that. And so my father being a great coach that he was, not a formal basketball coach, which he was my like business coach in a way he was coaching me through that. And it helped me focus. And so I would start to actually sit there and I would take a deep breath. I would, you know, take my like routine and dribbles before and I wouldn't hear anything. And so when I would take a shot, a free throw, I never heard the crowd. And so it was something that mentally my, like, my father was also a very good, a great basketball player, played some, some pro basketball. And he would say that to me to help me focus. And it became a habit. And then when I went to play on in college, I used to say the same thing, that self-talk in my mind, the inner voice would say, like, clear it, stay focused. And just a lot of that came. And then when I got into the professional world, that book just hit the nail on the head. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been experiencing. This is something so salient to me that it it's, was very personal to me because that was a conversation, you know, many nights shooting shooting basketball with my father that I had experienced. And I was like, all right, but this guy expands it into life. And he even talks about in life and in work and all these different facets. I was like, wow, it's so much bigger than just sports. And so that's really what happened was David gave me that book. And when I had to read all those by starting to work for that RIA, 
I was like, oh my gosh, this is something bigger. And then it grew from there. That, that was really the foundational piece of it. Really interesting. It's like it gave you words to this feeling that you were experiencing. When you look back, because I, I understand you're a sports guy, played college level basketball. It sounds like your father was a big role model of yours. When David gives you this book in the financial context, did you have a desire to go learn about now you've got this word flow that you experienced on the three free flow line to take this concept to the sports world? Or I guess what kept you in the financial world? Because before your research, flow and money didn't really go together. So right. I guess my question is, what made you think oh, I'm going to add this to or integrate this into our financial lives? For me, I saw it as this needs to be like, you need to spread this like gospel. I've got to tell more people about this because it's so powerful. And then it was so impactful to me. And that that was already my lens as, as I was reading that. I started to do more research about it and look at the academic literature and notice that there wasn't anyone talking about this in the financial realm. It was always around more about the optimal performance. The early research talked about where he studied elite athletes and how surgeons would, you know, do surgery for hours on and they loved that fulfilling experience of doing it. And, you know, we've heard the phrase surgeons love cutting. They love doing surgery. And that's why there's a state of flow that they go in that they're just working with their team and no one's asking like, hey, can you pass me that? They're, a lot of times they're just moving in rhythm together, which there is a thing called group flow. And I started to see that world. And that's where I even started to pursue, consider pursuing a doctorate and started asking actually another behavioral person in our industry, Daniel Crosby is a close friend of mine. And I asked him, I'm like, hey, should I go get a PhD and just totally leave the industry? I'm like so fascinated with this topic. And he's like, I don't know if you should fully leave it. He's like, I think you've got a pretty good gig. And so I actually started the, the firm, that firm I was at, Join. They pushed me to say, hey, look, we'll help start paying for that doctorate level if you want to start doing research in the behavioral realm. And when you start doing, a, this isn't a podcast about, you know, doing your doctorate and doing your dissertation, but when you're doing that research, you've got to find a gap in the literature. Where can you make, you know, your statement or put your stamp of like, hey, this is something unique. And so to be even more specific, I studied the relationship of flow and engagement because a lot of times we hear employee engagement or job engagement, however you want to uh, phrase it in like the IO psychology world. That's what really just took me down that path is that I've never heard anyone talk about it from financial planning. And I was working with clients at that time. I was an advisor. I would see these clients go through transitions like a death or a divorce or having kids and they didn't have kids prior. So like, that's a whole new thing. If you don't have kids and then when your first child's born, it's like a shock into your life. <laughs> Slightly. You're like, oh my gosh, I find out how much time I actually do yeah. have in the day because there's so much going on now. And if you add more children to that, and you know, there's just the life events and life transitions, there's endless. We're always going through one version of it. But I started to see how could I apply this to my life? And it was interesting because no one's thought about it that way. And my dissertation was the first research on financial planners on flow. And it was an easy gap for me to find because one, I never, I couldn't find any research on it. There's been flow research studied all over the world by some phenomenal academics and researchers, but no one has spent the time to purposely focus on financial planners. 
And like I said earlier, a lot of people focus on the optimal performance and like being at your best. And people hear that like, oh, you can do so much more when you're in flow states. For me, it was always this well-being. And that was partially because the frame for me was fulfillment. The firm I was working at was just having me research so much more on how to be more fulfilled in life and happiness and like, what is happiness? What's this weird word called uh, eudaimonia? Like all these things were getting exposed to me. And that's where I was like, maybe there's more to this. And that's really where I started to bridge it and say, hey, could this be something that I do with clients? Could this be something that we have a conversation about? Or in two parts, is this something that the advisor could be doing around themselves? but then also have that conversation or work with their clients about it. That's really what opened my mind to the perspective of it. I like this answer in so many different facets. We have many different areas to go, and I appreciate that. Before we started recording, you, you talked about, here I'm going to try it, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, a quote that really resonated with you. I would like you to repeat that quote, but the reason why I think it's so important is We've all experienced this, this experience when people optimize their portfolio, optimize their financial life, but there's this piece that's missing, this fulfillment, you would call it, this happiness, maybe it's, it's specifically related to what you're talking about, well-being. And I feel like far too often, we forget that the point of life is, yes, we need money. Money makes life easier. It allows us to do these things. But this quote that you shared with me, it just spoke to me as the big missing piece that we have in the financial world. Because I think sometimes people sail to the wrong island. They realize at 65, they made it to the wrong, they made it, they made it to the island, but they realized that island wasn't the island they were wanting to get to. So let, let's hear that quote. No, and that quote was was the foundation for Mihai, like why he started conducting research in this, because he's the one, he's the godfather of flow. He's the one that started this research. And I, I can give you some history on him, but that that sentence that he had was, what makes life worth living? Why is life worth living? What is that, that energy, that engagement, that fulfilling thing that makes life worth living? And I found that quite interesting because not in the, I mean, there is like the whole depressive state, like people that, you know, you can look at it from that negative context of like, that's people that are depressed and like, what's making life worth living? And actually there's tons of well-being benefits of flow. So that can help there. And actually, flow is negatively correlated with burnout. And so that's mm -hmm. such a high thing in the work context. But I found that so interesting when he mentioned that because it's such a different like lens. It's such a big question too. Sometimes think of these questions like, what's my purpose in life? And you can't walk into a client meeting and be like, hey, what's your purpose, Jordan? I mean... <laughs> Do you have all day? I don't know. Like, <laughs> let's go down, let's go down that rabbit hole and figure that out because I don't know. And I love that he proposed that question. And even towards the end of his career, he started to, to tie that to identity. And that's a way to like help figure out what is the, th the self-defining activities that are so fulfilling for you. And so that's kind of how he narrowed it down. And so he started with this big hypothesis of this question. And he narrowed it down to the different things that put you in that state of flow. I feel like it's such a profound question. I mean, it's simple. There's one, two, three, four, five words. And yet it's, it, it requires a lot of, I guess, reflection, self, 
observation, but it's so, so important. And because like we kind of alluded to, we could go through this whole life and realize that, hey, we're not doing the things that make life worth living, which comes to this identity. I think it's really neat. I've heard you, I, I can't remember if it was on writing or on a other podcast, you talked about identity and flow in the cultivation of our identity and how that helps us through transitions. But before that, let's take a step back and just identify flow. We've been talking in and around flow for maybe, actually, I think a lot of people have heard of flow, maybe not actually fully understand. We'll go to the the literature side here of what what constitutes flow. Like, I guess for a cueing, like the feedback I'm, I'm thinking about, the, the self uh, sense of control, et cetera. I'll turn it over to you because you're the expert in this. I mean, in short, the casual way is saying in the zone. It's like being in that being in that zone. But the more like academic perspective would be a state of deep absorption that's intrinsically motivating, that has clear goals and gives you immediate feedback. And so, and it's also enjoyable. And so you're thinking of a task or an activity that has that intrinsically motivating piece. You're totally immersed in it. You're getting clear goals and clear feedback from it. But it, you in that intrinsically motivating piece makes it enjoyable to you. And so that's why it's so relatable in sports because people are like, all right, if I'm playing basketball, clear goal, I got to make the basket. Or not, like that's, that's a very clear, in any sport you bring to it, there's probably, in hockey, you know, you're based in Canada. Hockey's a lot bigger up there than down here. Hockey's but, like Jordan. Uh, <laughs> It, hey, it's growing down here. Don't uh, don't knock it. It's getting pretty uh, nowhere near Canada, but it's it's growing. Team USA Go just ahead. won the World Juniors gold medal. Canada didn't even get a medal. Well, I didn't even know that, and maybe I need to become a better fan now because <laughs> we actually have some good talent. You guys are developing well, anyhow. <laughs> yeah, no, we digress. It's okay. But thing is, that there's a clear goal that you want to score. And I mean, you're getting immediate feedback. You've got a defender coming at you. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to move the puck which way or you're going to dribble one way. So that's why it was always so relatable for people in sports. And then it was bridged. And even Mihai started to bridge that. And there's actually tons of other academics out there. There's one that's uh, named Arnold Bacher that was a big guy that bridged it into what he called work-related flow. So how do you start to have those flow states at work? And he was he had a you know, a nice chunk of my research because he simplified it in some ways. But I always explain it as the best way is when you're immersed in that activity and you've got those that clear goal of what you're trying to do and you've got that deep focus, your attention is on that one task. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I mean, when you reflect back on your, your own states of flow, how in a world where we're distracted with these notifications, et cetera, like when you're in that flow, you don't even think about your phone. It's just, total immersion. And you bridged this in the conversation to well-being. And I think that'd yeah. be worthwhile to go to like, because yes, it's got these like positive psychology words that you've used, like this hedonic experience, like I'm enjoying right now, but it also has this eudonomic experience that you alluded to, or like creating this overall good life. Can you touch on how it impacts not only in the moment, I'm in the zone. It's feeling good when I'm scoring that goal and hopefully Team Canada beats US soon. But uh, how does it also impact our evaluation of our life? Yeah, the way that I've always looked at it as you have, you know, flow. And I even put it in an equation on a recent presentation that I gave, which was flow plus identity equals eudaimonia. And of course, that's like, you know, the, 
the nerdy academic term for like fulfillment and deep engagement in life. I've always looked at it that way because flow is so unique to each of us. And I say this in a joking way, but we're all a special snowflake. You know, each snowflake is unique. So each of us as humans, we're very different. And finding out what gives us engagement and gives us that flow, that flow state is unique to all of us. Are there similarities? Of course, there are certain things like that help you find that are precursors to finding flow states. But whatever activity or task, those things are all unique to you. And so that's why I've always tied identity to it because you need to find what are the self-defining activities to yourself in your personal life and at work. Like those are two different worlds. And that's why it's so paramount to find flow and what gives you that level in your life because a lot of people find flow in their work. And so if you're having that deep state of flow at work, and then you, you know, this is a simple one, you remove retirement, you become, you're retired now and you just took away their job where they found all their like engagement flow. They had all their relationships there. I mean, everything that's, you know, you circle around all the research and fulfillment and well-being is at that job. The best way to start to find that is now you're going through that transition. What are the activities outside of your job that gave you engagement, gave you that deep fulfillment, that deep absorption in an activity. And if you haven't gone through that conversation, which I hope advisors can start to have that because it's not as heavy of a conversation of like, hey, what's your purpose? And, you know, yes, do I believe in value sorts and priorities and focusing on those? But this is a fairly light conversation where you can start to talk about the different things that give you that deep, fulfilling, immersed, enjoyable activities. And it could be, you know, very simple that an athlete becomes a coach or an athlete becomes, you know, like a pro athlete. So I'm talking about like becomes a coach or volunteers to help other kids develop, like any of those kinds of things. If you gain so much fulfillment by doing that, you're probably going to gain just as much, if not more, by doing it this way. Because like any athlete, your knees, your back, everything's going to start to go down. So the things that give you flow at one point in your life is going to eventually change. And so you've got to find new ones. And that's why there's so many new neuroscience research coming out about how when we're aging, we have this cognitive decline. But if you actually are having flow states, it will fight against cognitive decline. And this is Definitely like a newer area in the flow research because the ability to find, you know, and study the chemicals and the reactions of our brain is only getting better. But that's a whole nother piece that it's like, hey, when we're retired and we think that we can play golf and spend time with grandkids, there's so much more you need to be focusing on. That is a much bigger conversation. I, I like this conversation around transitions with identity because... We all know several, especially in the financial planning world, several people who transitioned from this identity of worker to retire, retiree. And there's this sense of loss, like you talked about, I lost this identity. And when I was preparing for today, and I've heard you talk about this, like how flow can help us through these transitions. It made me think about how like flow is really tapping into like those authentic, organic parts of us that really like X, like it gets, yours gets lit up at basketball for 
for specific reasons. But flow is like, it's almost a gateway into what we actually like because the research even around happiness, we know that if we focus on being happy, we actually become less happy because we're trying to get this like elusive thing that doesn't exist. Where I like focusing on flow because it's putting me in the action of doing something that's going to make me feel good. I'm going to get positive emotions. And I guess lending itself, I, I think this in my head was really lending well to Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory. Whereas if we do more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever had thinking around just how flow, you know, where they say, how do you climb a mountain one, one step ahead of the other? I think flow really can help us through these transitions just by doing the things as opposed to just sitting in our heads and thinking about it. I love the the research on like broaden and build theory with positive emotions and all that. That's, I'm a big fan of that. And it truly is. And I mean, I've seen it working with clients and even being on the side of where I've coached advisors to use it with clients. And it was actually very much a stamp of approval is that we had a client one time, her husband passed. And we were going through just having a conversation about the activities that she needed to start doing. And, you know, there's the whole financial conversation that you have all the different things with the estate and every account. Financial planners, I'm, I'm not even like worried about that. That's where mm-hmm. we do a great job. And the other side was we started talking to her about just like she had grown kids and she had grandkids and going through that conversation of different activities that she had stopped doing while her husband was sick and things like that. And literally she picked it back up knitting. And something, obviously, when I say unique to someone's self, I don't even know where to start. Like, I don't, if you handed me the tools for it, the thread or whatever, all of the tools, I wouldn't even know what to do. However, she was amazing at knitting. And literally, I think it was probably five years ago, I saw the first part of research that started, and there's been multiple ones after it, that started to show that people have found that they've tracked tons of flow states by knitting. And even small things like, I mean, music is another big one. Things that you could do that you don't have to do strenuous activities. And now we're all talking on the personal side. There's the whole work piece. But these are all small things that made a huge impact. And she said it helped through the transition of spending time because she lost somebody. She lost her identity. She is now a widow where she was a married woman. And so she had a spouse and a partner. And so her identity changed. So now we need to reflect on all those activities, the things that she was doing and having that conversation. Because, you know, a lot of times we talk about this and a lot of your great guests have talked about behavioral assessments or certain activities that you got to take them through. We've all taken these surveys, all of us that are probably listeners and some of your guests. We love learning more about ourselves and like the quirky things in our psychology. However, Getting your everyday client to take a behavioral assessment that's 20 questions that's going to tell them about, you know, whatever that's important to them or they're, you know, it's hard enough to get them to taste risk risk tolerance. But if it's, you know, very psychology focused on them, it's hard to get them to take that. This could easily be a conversation or an assessment that's a little easier entryway because we've all seen the like the Morningstar research where as advisors, we think that we're doing behavioral coaching and all of these things and your values and your goals and all this human stuff. But then when we ask the client, they're like, yeah, you help me get better returns and you help me do planning. So we have to like stealth it in. This one's a much easier way to stealth in that behavioral stuff. 
And like so real. And I, I keep saying that because like if you were my client, I started talking to you about the three rows. I would be able to notice and sense you like just perk up your posture, your tone would you'd have higher reflections. And you would probably would leave that meeting and be like, whoa, that felt good. And it just back to the positive emotions research. I mean, the more positive emotions I feel, the more resilient I can be and the more likelihood I will be to make financial decisions that perhaps are more related to this well-being state. Well, in that positive emotions piece, like if you think about it, even some of the precursors to it, to finding flow is there's so many like, I mean, like autonomy in the work world. That's a huge precursor to find, having flow states. And if you think about like awe, like AWE, there's been some big research about awe. That's another big precursor to go, getting finding flow is that you've having that state of awe in a situation. I mean, it's like you go stand in front of the Grand Canyons or something. And then, you know, if you're hiking and you get up to the top and like you're having this positive emotion, I mean, that's awe. And you've probably forgotten how long and how difficult that hike was because you're having some of those flow states in it. I mean, runner's high. That's actually a short, short peak of a flow state is a runner's high where you have that spillover of positive emotion. You know, a lot of that like gratitude, I even uh, at the very end of my research, when I talked about like future possibilities, would I would love for somebody or if I had the capacity one day to study how gratitude could be a possible precursor to flow. Because, you know, when we are doing a gratitude exercise or reflecting on things that we're grateful for, it brings blood to our brain and we have more positive well-being because now we're starting to look at, you know, and it's gratitude, even if you, they tell you to be even very specific about things. It's not like, hey, I'm grateful for the good weather. If that's the day you're having and it's rough to pull things out, then it's great. But you always want to get real specific because then it's going to even add more benefit to you. I feel like that there's possibility some good research there to show that that could even be a precursor to it. When you say the positive emotions, those are giving you a good positive spotlight on those positives in your life. Two guests who've been on the show, Martin Say and Sarah Acevedo, they collaborated on a paper that looked at the three good things in the financial planning context. And I love the findings because I, I don't have the paper memorized, but it wasn't substantially are significant when they did the three good things or three good financial things. Like the impact wasn't significant, but just doing the three good things, the generic version created positive emotions, which they reported feeling more, I forget, I think it was just overall feeling better after the six weeks. So just lending itself back to this positive emotion thing is if we feel positive emotions, life is good. And you know, it's not ignoring positive psychology talks about this all the time. And I think at right. times, it gets a bad rap that, oh, it's all about positive emotions. But no, it's also recognizing, feeling, understanding the negative emotions. Across your research, how, if anything at all, has like understanding the negative parts or the negative emotions play into flow? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, to, I'll take a step back on it. And speaking on the, the positive versus like the traditional psychology, there was a a 2000, year 2000 APA paper that a lot of people refer because all of your listeners and you're very familiar of Marty Seligman and the PERMA model. Well, he was co-authored on that paper with Mihat. 
they co-authored that paper, that 2000, year 2000 paper on basically the introduction of positive psychology. And I always, uh, because I'm a disciple of Csikszentmihalyi, I'm always like, hey, I'm raising my hand like, you know, we were involved in that too. <laughs> Whereas, you know, it's kind of like Lakers versus the Celtics kind of thing where, you know, another basketball reference there. But it's, um, you had Marty Seligman at, at UPenn and then you had Mihai Csikszentmihalyi on the West Coast at Claremont. So they were two people who had completely different lenses. One was PERMA, one was FLOW. But they were both going for the same thing that fulfillment in life, you know, what's life like, what makes life worth living kind of perspective. And so like the negative piece to me, I think there's a ton of value in it. And like in anything, there's always a dichotomy. Like there's even research out there that like you can have negative flow where um, they don't actually call it negative flow, but like a negative impact from flow state where you're, you know, you're possibly doing something and you're so deeply immersed in it that there could be some negative to it. You know, and that's say that you're doom scrolling or something on your phone. Like that might not be like a, a positive thing. Some people might say it's binging on Netflix or, or pick your, you know, your streaming app to use on that. In some ways though, they've even showed positive though from the streaming where some people gain that engagement because you know, and I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but say you're an introverted person and you regain energy by the the down taking some off. So that might be a way for you to recharge. But I'd say that there's there's always the dichotomy of it, that there's some negative pieces because in anything in life, too much of something could be bad. But in the extreme sports world, they attach a lot to flow because they're like, oh, I'm going to surf this like 100 foot wave. And it's like, well, if you don't make it in that 100-foot wave, it might kill you. Like, yeah. it's a pretty serious commitment, but good thing you did get into a flow state and you hit a home run. Like, you know, now you're all over Instagram or whatever surfing this giant wave. So I think there's that huge piece to it that like anything, too much might be bad. Mm -hmm. But I think that one of the core things of flow too is that you've got to have some rest and recovery. You can't be in a flow state all day long, every day. And it's like anything like the biggest problems with if you were trying to get into flow is if you're not getting enough sleep. And so like they found the tons of research on, on this that if you're getting adequate sleep, then it's going to help you be able to get in that flow state. And so like anything, you've got to have your body at a good, we'll just say like homeostasis. But when you're looking at the neg any kind of negative piece, I think that that's the biggest side of it is that there could be an extreme side of it. That's kind of why I've always focused on the well-being is mm -hmm. that it's very purposeful to your life. And is it, you know, they're an optimal performance and like you'll get more done at work and you'll learn faster, all that. Is that important? Absolutely true. And are those attributes of flow? 100%. But I think there's, I've always tried to extend the research on the application of positive, like well-being piece of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes back to that question. What makes life worth living when we focus on those ends? Bringing up Martin Seligman, it, I never thought about this, and I might be stretching, but his work on uh, post-traumatic growth, I mean, I would imagine in those traumatic situations, they're in a flow state. Maybe it's not, I don't know if it would be considered like a very difficult state, but I, I, I imagine you get immediate feedback, you're getting, you're immersed and you're totally engaged. I guess what makes me thinking about it is like, it can be a negative experience. And then it's how when we're recovering to your point, Perhaps it's how we frame it, how we interpret it, that 
we can change the meaning to it. I don't know. I feel like I'm stretching there. No, I think that's a good one. I mean, like post-traumatic growth is an interesting concept as it is because it, it's almost, I bet it would be challenged by, because I'm obviously very uh, pro-positive psychology mm-hmm. and that's really my lens on the world. And, you know, it's really the way I see research, the world, the industry, everything. But I think some people might challenge it because, you know, you think of post-traumatic stress and the negative side of it, which is very relevant and very true. But I think too, with the post-traumatic growth, a lot of times it might be that people reframe things and you're looking at a situation as a positive. Like I was actually reading something the other day. Somebody was talking about how they lost their job and no one wants to lose their job. I mean, that's a terrible thing, especially like from, I don't even have to get into it, all the facets of losing your job. If you're supporting yourself, you're supporting a family, whatever. But this person mentioned that it was one of the greatest things that happened because they found the job that they've like absolutely loved and they've been so fulfilled. And there's actually a, another person I'll be speaking at his conference in March of this year. He mentioned that he was a big, he does a lot of like focus on transitions. And he's like, you know, it's crazy how sometimes life finds a way to figure itself out. And I thought that that was such a good positive. I mean, it's very simplistic, but it's, it's a great simple not bad. Simple can be great, but it's so true. And I think that like post-traumatic growth is really like reframing, like in some ways you're reframing a situation that you can grow out of that situation. I don't know a ton on that research, but I know that it's an interesting perspective because I think you can really grow from some traumatic things or use that as value for as you're moving through life. Because if you've, you know, let's say you've seen rock bottom, well, then you know you can withstand some difficult things in life. And so you're going to build some self-efficacy and some trust in yourself to really be better and to be stronger when you're going through other difficult times. So I think that's a, an interesting conversation. I would love, that's, there's a cue for you to find whoever's like the lead researcher on post-traumatic growth. I want to hear it. Yeah. So going back to, to your work specifically, when we, when we look at our financial lives, at times the narrative has been sacrifice. I don't know if this is the word, but sacrifice, I'm going to use it. Sacrifice in terms of, you see these motivational quotes, do the things that people aren't willing to do now so you can do the things people can't do later. These, these things about saving and, you know, the fire movement really jumped in. And I, I, I like a lot of parts of the fire movement, but it's like sacrifice now so we can live later. Where flow, you know, not saying that you have to go spend all your money, but flow requires us to get out there and go for that run, take that free throw, score that goal, paint that picture. How do you integrate this idea of flow into our financial planning? And we've touched on the surface in terms of having the conversations, like you said, what makes life worth living to asking the clients. But do you have any other, other suggestions on how we can really integrate this or marry these two concepts, financial planning and flow? Yeah, I always look at it from like the work perspective is an easy one too. I mean, if there's the huge piece of like life transitions and life events and having that conversation when you're going through different phases of life. But I also look at it from work and I'll read a quote to you because I didn't want to butcher it. So I, I got it, of course, here in front of me. And it says, work is a strange experience. It provides some of the most intense and satisfying moments. It gives a sense of pride and identity, yet it is something most of us are glad to avoid. 
And so that's actually Mihai. He's a That is a great quote. It is. It's usually in one of my in my presentations because it's it's one of the I use it all the time and I probably could have gone off the cuff with it, but I wanted to make sure to it hit home. But it makes, you know, it's definitely like a part of our identity. It's like when you meet somebody and people are like, Hey Sean, what do you do for a living? And it's people trying to categorize us because they're curious, like, well, mm-hmm. what do you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, depending on who you meet, if you say financial advisor, people are terrified of you. Or if you say psychologist, they're going to be like, yikes. Those are two things that are, you know. Um, I'm throwing people for a loop now and say, I don't really know. And they're like, huh? Hey, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what I grow up, you know? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. You know. What do you want to do? Tell me more. <laughs> no, I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that figuring out like what you want to do for work. Is there going to be like where you love 100% of your job? Absolutely not. I mean, I, I think that that's just some realistic, like we can love what we do, but there's always going to be things that we dislike. But I like to also categorize it in the work world because that's where I've tried to, to bridge it into as well. Because if you can find what you're doing that's fulfilling in those ways, it's really important. And I think a lot of people have jobs that they hate and they might have other skills that could be easily applicable and still make have a great income and be completely fulfilled and have that life that they want by having the time that they want to spend their time. If you want to spend more time doing X or spend more time at home or whatever it is, you've got a set of skills. Let's have that conversation. So, I mean, it could be as broad as like, what are you doing with your life? Like, what is your job? Like, what is the career you've cho- chosen? Or, you know, maybe you're fine with that job and you're really looking for it outside of work. Like you've got a pretty calm, you don't want an insanely intense or difficult job, but then now you can bridge it back into their personal life. So I think that the the pitch of flow can really be either side, either or. It's very bimodal on the fact that you can focus on the personal side and that's where those life transitions, those events, which life transitions also impact your job and work because you know, if you're wanting to have more time at home, but your job requires you to be in the office nine to five at Monday through Friday, well, where could your skill set be utilized? Because we all have special things that we're great at. And so it could be either or, but it could be personal. It could be like what activities outside of work that are hobbies that you love. I think that's really salient for retirement roles because you're leaving retirement and retirement a guy that I've chatted with many times on the human behavior side, Dan Halet, he always says that retirement's like a word that we made up and we don't have to be yes or no, like, hey, I'm retired or no, I'm not. It could be part-time jobs or it could be another job that's completely different than the career you're in because this is where you find familiar, but it gives you the flexibility that you want. So I think that the application is so broad and that was one reason why I love the topic and this was kind of a, I fell into this that, there are very few things in psychology and any kind of research that are ubiquitous across all genders, all cultures, all people in the world. And flow has been found in, I would be wrong to say everyone because from then people would be like, oh, this guy doesn't have a doctor. He's never done real research because <laughs> you can't say that. Yeah. But the application of this is so broad because it has been studied in people that are sheep herders to people that are across the globe in a different culture than Western America where we live. So I think 
that having something that's so applicable in a very diverse world that we live in and as it gets more globalized and more diverse, this is something you can talk about with somebody and literally everyone has had, if they haven't yet, they could find a way to relate because there's some kind of activity that's unique to them that they've found enjoyment and engagement in. And so I, I think that's so powerful where when we're talking about like understanding other cultures and different people, you have something now you can talk about. You don't have to worry that you're doing the wrong thing. Like a peace sign in the United States might mean something completely different in another country. Like, you know, this is something that flow has been found in all different. And that was actually something that Csikszentmihalyi advocated for because obviously by his name, he was a Hungarian-American that he wanted to, to do some very rigorous research because, you know, you know this and all our listeners know this, that psychology sometimes gets a bad rap for lack of replication. Flow has not had that problem. There's been a lot of validation. And I guess because he did have his PhD from University of Chicago, which is the place for uh, economists, that he was very much an, ac- or, uh, an active researcher on wanting to make this real and to show that this is something that's valid. This is not just fluff existential conversation that we're having. What really strikes me about this is that it's the byproduct that we're really talking about of flow. Like not the act in itself. Like yes, that feels good, but we've kind of circled around this, but it's what flow does for us, impacting our well-being, making us feel happier. Kind of like fun. If you have fun, the byproduct is and positive emotions, et cetera, where if I go back to this idea of happiness where we're trying to be happier, there's articles all over, be happier. It's a hard thing to do. We're flow, like, like we do things that are enjoyable. And I just such a relevant conversation in our financial lives because the way my mind frames it is that money gives us this resource. We always talk about money as a tool, everyone does. But when we don't know what to use it for, it's hard to use it. So we go buy the big house or go do this. But Let's spend it on uh, facilitating more flow in our lives. <laughs> well, that's what, you know, when some people push back on when I do like a, a coaching session or I give a talk about it, if anyone comes up and like wants to go like a layer deeper or, you know, push to like, you know, maybe they're in a state where they are struggling to find it. And that's a lot of times where you're in a bad state. And that's why it has a negative correlation with burnout because you could be in a state of burnout or in, you know, in a state where you're not having those flow states. But one of the things I always say, and I, and I wrote this in an article one time, was I called it a child at play. I mean, I have two young children. And if you watch them playing, like they are definitely in a state of flow. Like they have one focus and it is to dig a hole in the backyard yeah. or whatever it is to hit this ball or to run around and climb this tree or to jump off the highest thing in the house. Like they are truly at it. And there is a whole area of research of play. but I always make that joke because it's like, well, what, what gave you so much happiness when you were younger? And some people, you know, immediately think of something. Some people, you know, sit there and have to like reflect back. But it does put you that it could be something that simple. You know, it could be something that simple that you see a child at play. They are so engaged. They're smiling. They're happy. I mean, there's so many things that are starting to come out with low research that's showing like even the way our face relaxes when we go, when we're in a flow state, like there's just so many things that are positive. So I, I always find that as like a, I say it as a joke or I'll share like a picture of like my, my son where 
I used to share this picture and presentations of him like going down a slide at the park. And I mean, that cost us nothing. You know, we're at a park, a public park in Atlanta and he's sliding. And I mean, he's smiling ear to ear, his hands are up and he's just having the best time of his life. And I mean, like some things like that, that's literally that feeling of flow. Mm -hmm. And another piece of that I found so powerful because I was a young father when I was finishing my research or finishing my dissertation was seeing that there's a spillover effect. And I've started to call it like that, that afterglow or that like flow glow, that might be too catchy, but the, uh, it's really a spillover effect of flow. So you have more energy and more vigor in your life. So that's why I've tried to push it towards like, these are some things you need to focus on at work. Because if you're having some flow states at work and you go home, you need to save some energy for your partner. You need to save some energy for your kids. And so if you have that spillover of positive emotions, then you're going to have a more fulfilling relationship with both of those. And when I read that research, I was like, my mind like blew. I was like, wow, why are more people not talking about this? This seems like something so important that we should all make sure that we're focusing on because we all want to have better relationships. Again, that's an overgeneralized term. I guess some people might not, but you know, you would, we all want to have good relationships with our partner and our children. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that as such a, a powerful attribute or, you know, you said like the benefit from flow. Mm-hmm. That's why I feel like the well-being piece has to be talked about more because there's just such a good, you don't even have to be an extreme sports person, but if you're doing some of the right things and structuring your day so that you have that, I mean, it could be really profound for your life. So many good things here. I, I want to be mindful of the time, but you know, it's a money podcast and to, <laughs> we didn't talk about portfolios, nor were we going to, by the way. But um, I just want to reemphasize that the importance I feel of this is because what is this all for? It's for, I feel, but life, why we're working. Hey, I like your idea of bringing flow or there's a lot of conversation around bringing meaning to work so that yeah. we have these better feelings. And you're talking about relationships too. If, if flow helps us have better relationships, I mean, there's so much research, research that shows that positive relationships are a huge, huge indicator for a positive experience of well-being. And so if flow helps us get there, there's just another byproduct of the importance of this. Yeah, the whole longitudinal study, that big study that came mm-hmm. out was the, I think the book they actually wrote for was, the, I think it was The Good Life. And it talked about where they, you know, tracked all of those people for years and they saw all these different things and money didn't make anyone's life better. But relationships was like the core facet of that research that was so profound. And you can even go into a flow state from a conversation. Maybe you just love, like, I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation and like, Sean, we could probably go and have coffee or a drink and just go down the full gamut of behavioral science. And I would probably love it. And next thing you know, it'd be like three hours and it'd be like, oh my gosh, I need to go pick up my kids from school. Like that's a flow state because you are having that group engagement. I mean, if you think about when you see a team playing sports, again, another sports reference, but, and you're like, oh my gosh, they are firing on all cylinders. That's because they have the same goal. There were, I mean, I doubt that, I mean, there is some communication going, but a lot of times when they make that great pass, where they do that thing, it's because they are all deeply engaged together. And so if you can have that with relationships, of course, 
saying happiness and fulfillment is like one thing is difficult and it's always multifaceted, but I've always leaned on flow as being a, such a great entry point to all of those different fulfilling things in your life. I agree, Jordan. I feel like we could chat for a long time <laughs> and I'm going to be going to shift. So perhaps we can do it. I ask a question to everybody at the end of the podcast, but I, I'm curious about one more. So sure. you've really engaged, purposely use that word, engaged in this research, in this idea of flow. When you look back on your days where perhaps the origin of this interest to flow came when you're playing basketball, between now and then, how have you altered, modified, or changed your way of being to allow more space or yeah, opportunity for flow? I think for me, the biggest change is to be more purposeful about it and to structure it and to make sure that like even through phases of my life, that it is something that's salient to me. So I am a big believer in setting goals. I do set goals in my day job. I mean, I am an adjunct professor, but my, my main job, I do run our firms like OKRs. So I run the point on setting our quarterly goals as an organization with our president. And so like goals are important to me. But I think for me in every stage of my life, it's just trying to make sure that this is something like salient to, you know, because if we all get caught up in the world of getting stressed or, you know, a partner is working and you're working and you got kids, like all the things that go on in life or, you know, we're getting pulled in different ways or if you're a caregiver, you know, all these things can be deeply pulling on your time. And it's so true that time is our most precious resource. But also our attention is very precious as well. And so just being really purposeful on what we're focusing on, what I'm spending my time. And I was actually listening to, a, I'm a very big fan of podcasts in general, and I'm a fan of your podcast. I've been a listener for a while. So I appreciate you on that. But I was listening today just talking about how somebody was really struggling to find like the time and the priorities and they were going through listing out all of the things. And that's something I've just naturally done. And it became more salient that this is why I was doing it is so that I knew what I was spending my time because I did get a doctorate while I worked full-time, while my spouse worked full-time. We actually had both kids in that window. I mean, there was a lot going on. So I had to subtract things from my life that weren't as purposeful or important at that time in my life. And I think for me, one of the biggest changes that I made was being able to be really focused on where my time is handled. And so focusing and giving myself time to find flow. Some people might find it working out. I go work out every morning because that is when I have time from my two kids and my job and everything else. So I'm very purposeful to get that time in. And then on, you know, I try to find time to go shoot basketball. I don't play anymore because I just don't want to get hurt. <laughs> but I still go shoot because I know as long as I'm at the age of athletic enough that I can still do that, that is something that gives me deep, like, fulfillment. And so I hope one day to play with my daughter and my son. And maybe that'll give it as well. But all these things change. And I think through each phase of my life, I always go back and reflect on how are things going. And it's kind of like, my wife and I, we go once a month on Friday mornings because it's the time we finally can cut out for each other because our jobs are both very demanding. We'll go get coffee together at our favorite coffee shop 
and just catch up on life. Sometimes we're talking about the kids. Sometimes we don't, we barely talk. We're just there for each other's presence and, co- and company. But we always try to stay, keep each other in, you know, in check of, hey, you know, how are things going to work? How are things like making sure we each have time to do the things we enjoy because life gets really busy. And if you don't take that step back, then you're really just going to, like you said, you're living someone else's life. You're not being purposeful with it. There's all those, all kinds of great analogies and metaphors for, you know, you put your ladder up on the wrong, you know, the wrong building or whatever it is, or you've lived someone else's life. And so for me, I think the biggest thing, I know that was a long-winded answer, but my biggest thing was through life, I've just been very purposeful to make sure that I'm having those, even if it is a difficult time in life. So even if it is something that's hard or difficult, I'm trying to really make sure that I give myself space because I love reading. That's another way that you can find flow. And so it's really just trying to be purposeful about those. I appreciate just how much like this sentiment of subtraction so you can focus on the things that bring you flow as opposed to just, I think at times, even the popular culture is like, oh, I got to add this. I got to become the part of 5 a.m. club. I got a cold bath. I got to do all this stuff because it makes it, you know, understand myself, subtract so I can have that coffee with my wife or whatever it is. Thank you for that. Okay, my last question, and I've asked everyone this question. So let's imagine you're at end of life and your ladder was on the right. I, I just added that in. That's not usually. Anyhow, you're sitting on this front porch. You're at life end and you decide to write a letter to your children's children on how you see having a happy and healthy relationship with money. What did you learn by your life? is important for this happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? What would be the theme? Theme. A theme, a key message to that letter on having this happy and healthy relationship with money. My initial thought is understanding the rhythm of life that you do want to save and that there is a level of comfort in having financial independence, but understanding that life is short and that we're not always given tomorrow and that we could literally die tomorrow to make sure that you don't feel overwhelmed by needing to save every dime or to do it, to sacrifice those experiences. I'm very much a person that believes in, yes, I want to save. Yes, you need to like prepare for retirement. However, if life gives you an opportunity to do something that's spontaneous or a unique experience, you can always make more money. And I feel like you've got to live life because if you spend your whole life worried about saving or doing things like that, you're going to miss out on so much. And I think that's something like why flow is important to me. And so my theme would definitely be understanding that rhythm of life and always go for those things that are important to you. And did I think it was the best of choices to get a doctorate in my, you know, early 30s with a full family and a wife that's very successful in the tech world. Can't say it was the easiest, but I had a supportive partner. I got two great kids still, and it was something that was important to me. Was it expensive? Absolutely. But I am a firm believer in just understanding that you've got to enjoy life. You have to, because it's you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Thank you. I mean, in that letter, you could reflect back on what would the cost have been to not take that doctorate? It, I mean, I don't know what it is, but uh, it is, it's one of those things that 
I'm very big on if you have something that you're passionate about, like obviously don't get a doctorate because of the vanity. But I, if you're a very curious person and you want to understand the research and you want to go deeper, it was tough. It was a tough four years. My wife definitely has an honorary doctorate. She's heard me blabber on about behavioral science for years. And she even understands flow at a very intuitive level because of my whiteboarding sessions of trying to figure out what measure am I going to use for this? Who, what's my sample size? Like all these different random things you got to do. But I, I'm a firm believer in that if it's something's important to you, just do it and you'll figure it out. But you got to, you, you only get one shot at this thing and it's called this thing called life. And so if you don't do those things, you're going to, you're going to regret it. And I want to be able to die one day and say, Hey, you know, I didn't regret anything I did. I got to actually live the life I wanted to. That would be my theme, I guess, understanding that rhythm of life. I like the way the rhythm of life. I wrote that down. Well said. Thank you so much for this. Before we get into what you're doing, where people can find you, how, how old are your kids? My son is five and my daughter is two. Two. Okay. So yeah, my son's seven and daughter's five. You mentioned right about playing hockey or uh, basketball now and not don't want to get hurt. But in my head, it was going towards coaching. My son, he's been playing hockey for three years now. And I coach him and it is like, I go to his games or practice and it's like instant flow. It's better than when I played hockey. So anyways, if your kids ever do play sports or basketball, it is a treat. You know, I'm with you. I got to coach my son for the first time, played soccer because he was just uh, finally old enough at, five, at four or five years old. Yeah. And was it completely chaos and just like a mess? Absolutely. Like we don't even really count out of bounds or anything. It's just yeah. like, let them run around, you know? And it was so much fun. It was exhausting, like getting up every morning, trying to gather them up and get them <laughs> to the field and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you, I mean, we all know this from like the research and psychology and stuff that you're not going to remember all those like terrible moments of like the kid crying on the ride to the <laughs> you know, field. But when they get out there and you're smiling, have a good time, we forget all those things. And we really remember like the smiles that we had. And then that experience that we got to do with them. So it's fun. I highly recommend it. Even if you're not a big sports person, I tell people to always, it's fun. You're not, you're not teaching them rocket science when they're five years old playing mm-hmm. sport. You just want them to have fun. You should love the game. Just and then fun. you have fun doing it. So it's a win-win. So Jordan, where can people find you? Maybe your firm's website. Uh, where would you yeah. point people towards on the internet? The best way to find me, if you wanted to chat more, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, Jordan Hutchison. Easy to find me on there. There's not many of us. There are a few. And then uh, my firm that I work for is RFG Advisory. So you can Google RFG Advisory and I'm on there as well. Happy to chat about flow, anything in the world that I live in. I live in the world of tech and behavioral science all day. So it's what I love. I'm always welcoming a conversation. I always, when I speak to universities, I always welcome any of the students down to that side to other firms to talk about it because I think we can all do better and focusing on these things. So I welcome any conversation. Wonderful. And you'll be speaking at Shift. So for anyone listening who is going or thinking about going, come and uh, get an hour or so flow in your presentation. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Sean. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Hopefully you found yourself at times in perhaps a flow state or this week, I hope you find yourself in one, two, or three situations where you feel that flow state. Until next week, have yourself a great one, and thanks for supporting the show. 
I'm on a mountain without a top My wealth is measured and now I spend my time But now I write a freedom story With every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life It's just the wind in the sea 